Listen, it's time now to hear the quiet revolution. Welcome back. You are listening to The Quiet Revolution, Ways of Knowing, and this is Florence Dunkel. Today we are around the campfire in Wyoming on the Wind River Reservation. We are in Fort Washakie with Jason Baldus and sitting in the welcome warmth of the fire just outside his teepee. Jason and I have been co-teaching students at Montana State University for many moons, many, many moons. Once, probably a decade ago, Jason was my student, but I have been his student for just as long. He arrived at MSU to earn a bachelor's degree and when he came to our university, it was clear that his mission, his mission was to learn as much as he could about buffalo, officially bison, for his degree. After his master's degree, also in land resources and environmental sciences, Jason returned to his land and his people to live here in Fort Washakie. Now, Jason is the Tribal Buffalo Coordinator for the Tribal Partnership Program at the National Wildlife Federation. My name is Jason Baldus. I'm a member of the Eastern Shoshone Tribe. I currently work as the Tribal Buffalo Coordinator for the National Wildlife Federation's Tribal Partnerships Program. I serve as Region 1 Director for the Intertribal Buffalo Council and uh, the Shoshone Buffalo representative for our tribe. We're sitting uh, on 80 acres of land owned by my family. Uh, we've got 30 head of horses in here. We're sitting under a very old yellow willow tree. Uh, we've got 30 horses in the pasture around here with us and a nice blue sunny day on uh, Wind River Indian Reservation. My grandma and grandpa on my mother's side uh, are right up the road. They, they passed on, but my aunts and uncles and cousins and nieces and nephews are all in this, in this Trout Creek Valley right here. And uh, my dad, also a tribal member, but he grew up in, in Riverton, which is about uh, 30 miles or so to the east of us. Um, his his great-grandpa, came from the Pueblo in New Mexico. Uh, he, him and his cousin witnessed a murder and they rode north uh, and his cousin was shot off the horse, but he kept going and made it to Wyoming. Uh, this, this was before the States then, but he had um, taken his, his name was Claude Moya and he took his mother's maiden name, which was Valdez and changed the V to a B and a Z to an S. And so that family name was, was carried on in that way. And um, so both my mom and dad are, are born from the Wind River Reservation, both members of the Shoshone tribe. And uh, we're, we've been here by archeological evidence, you know, 13,000 years in this, in this valley. So very, very long time that the Shoshone people have been here. This land actually uh, was, the, uh, was a site of the Shoshone Sundance prior to the General Allotment Act that, that divided up land um, to break it up, to break up Indian land holdings. So this is a, this, this particular chunk of land here has a lot of historical context. The Shoshone people are one of the oldest linguistic groups uh, in the nation. 
course, there were 576 federally recognized tribes, over 300 languages uh, in the United States prior to uh, statehood. Um, a lot of those languages have been, been lost, especially on the East Coast. But the Shoshone tribe, we speak the Numic branch of the Uto-Aztecan dialect. So the people of the Shoshone language come from the South, the Aztecs. So we share uh, language with the Shoshone Bannocks, the Paiutes, the Utes, the Comanches, uh, the Hopi. The, the, the different language branches go to the south as opposed from, from the north. When the original reservation was established in 1863, the, the federal commissioners recognized that the Shoshone people used a, utilized a vast area so in 1863 at the Fort, Fort Bridger Treaty, uh, the reservation was 44 million acres. It was, this was before the states, but it would have been half of Wyoming, northern Colorado, northern Utah, eastern Idaho, and most of Yellowstone. So by our own leadership describing the, the land base that we utilize for different resources, the, the wildlife economy, then uh, at certain times of the year we would be up in Three Forks in Montana or over in Idaho or out in the, in the, in the Dakotas in the Nebraska area, down into Colorado. Uh, that, you know, whole territory was utilized at certain times of the year for different, different resources. 1864, 1865, 1866, 67, those were tough years for the buffalo and the decimation of, of the buffalo herds was also the westward expansion and the California Trail, Oregon Trail, Mormon trails all converged through the Shoshone Reservation at South Pass. And so again negotiations were made and the, the lands were diminished in a span of five years at the Treaty of, Treaty of 1868 at Fort Laramie our reservation was reduced by roughly 40 million acres. This was because of, of gold and uh, steel and, and various um, minerals that were sought after by pioneers and settlers uh, as expansion continued. So the reservation was diminished uh, significantly. There were ill negotiations made with uh, the Bruno session, which um, essentially gave the $25,000 to the Shoshone tribe for what is now Lander to South Pass. Even though millions or most likely billions of dollars were, were extracted for gold and, and steel. The, the, uh, that was the Bruno session. The McLaughlin Agreement um, established Thermopolis. That was supposed to be one mile by one mile, but they put a zero at the ends and made it 10 miles by 10 miles. You know, negotiations and bad faith have, have happened continuously and continue to uh, eroding jurisdiction and sovereignty of the tribe. The General Allotment Act, probably the worst uh, act of legislation to affect Indian tribes, which broke up our Indian land holdings and opened up reservations for homesteading, created a checkerboard effect uh, on, on the land where tribes have, have lost jurisdiction. So the General Allotment Act was put in place as a, as a means to take our lands away and, it, and it's still happening. Uh, we still are losing uh, lands 
through real estate and uh, agreements that weren't lived up to. Uh, the, the Arapaho tribe uh, who was allied with the Oglala, Lakota, and the Cheyennes, and the Arapahoes, and the defeated George Armstrong Custer, uh, they were really trying, struggling to, to negotiate a, a land base of their own. Uh, but after the Bates battle, uh, lots of Arapaho members were, were killed. They were temporarily placed here uh, on the Shoshone Reservation by General uh, Bates, who was negotiating uh, their transfer to their permanent home in Estes Park, Colorado. While General Bates died that winter and, and the Arapahoes remained. And fast forward to 1924, uh, Shoshone tribe won a lawsuit and the Arapahoes became part owners of the reservation and the, the namesake changed from the Shoshone Reservation to the Wind River Reservation. And today we still operate as two tribal governments. Shoshone tribe and the Arapaho tribe are still very distinct governments, even though there's lots of intermarriage and things like that. So the, uh, the Shoshone people have, have been here longer. We're the Uto Aztecan speakers, the, the Arapaho are Algonquin. They come from the Great Lakes region. And so um, politically it gets challenging here on, on the reservation in terms of decision making and things like that. Um, both, you know, two different languages, uh, cultures, customs, but are uh, both Buffalo people. And so our, our life's commissary, uh, that, that is held in common with that Buffalo. So that, that Buffalo is, a, is seen as a way to um, heal, not only metaphorically, but physically, emotionally, uh, governmentally, uh, as, as a means to bring our people to together more. I took a trip to East Africa when I was 18 and it really is what changed my trajectory because my dad and I witnessed the, the wildebeest migration in the Serengeti in the Maasai Mara. And it was um, one and a half million animals, but we drove for over a over hundred miles on dirt roads and as far as you could see in every direction was wildebeest. Also about 33 other species. One day we count 88 hyenas, but you see impalas and gazelles and zebras and uh, just a, a wide range of wildlife. But what was more unfathomable to me was that that's less than 5% of what the buffalo was here less than 200 years ago. So when I had that realization sitting in the middle of the mi migration of wildebeest, I was thinking about buffalo and what that must have looked like and why and how it was exterminated and what for uh, is a direct assault on me as a human being because as a Shoshone person they were trying to wipe out my people. So you know I, I had a, a newfound uh, 
appreciation and drive, I think, after returning from that trip to uh, try to try to make some difference for future generations, I think, to ensure that buffalo would be here for them. As an undergraduate and graduate student at Montana State, I, I worked on a draft management plan uh, for bison restoration. Uh, got an EPA STAR fellowship to look at community, uh, improving community and ecological health by reintroduction of bison. Uh, through an Alfred P. Sloan Foundation fellowship, uh, kind of honed in my thesis in looking at cultural plant biodiversity and relic wallows and tribal bison policy. So all the while uh, at Montana State and academically, I was working for the benefit of my home community to, to reintroduce bison or buffalo back here. So in, I contracted uh, a lot of work through the National Wildlife Federation to help fund uh, my efforts. We, we created a, a partnership with the Shoshone tribe. And in 2016, uh, after securing a location for the tribe, tribal land, well not tribal land, land owned by the Shoshone tribe, um, and then improve the infrastructure. We, we brought 10 buffalo from the Neil Smith Wildlife Refuge in Iowa in uh, 2016, November. And then in uh, May of 2017, our first calf was born. In October of 2017, we brought 10 more buffalo from the National Bison Range in Montana. And then through a tribe-to-tribe -tribe agreement in 2019, brought five bulls from the Fort Peck tribe um, in an un, kind of an unprecedented move to share in the offspring of Yellowstone genetic buffalo. So um, in, in the realm of bison conservation, I work with a small number of what we call conservation buffalo. There's less than 25,000 buffalo that fit under that category. Um, they're genetically pure. They're, they're not managed as livestock, they're, they're essentially treated as close to wildlife as possible under natural regulating factors. Most of the buffalo in the United States today are under commercial meat production or they have cattle and or have cattle gene integration. And so the, the genome of, of buffalo or bison is still under threat. So that's why we work under the auspices of those conservation buffalo. So the Department of Interior manages 12 of those populations. There's a few that exist on tribes, uh, tribal reservations that fit that criteria. And so as we, as we expand and think about buffalo conservation, we want to kind of step out of the paradigm of thinking that we have to treat them like cows. We, we've, as collectively as people, forgotten how to see buffalo on the landscape because they only exist in parks and refuges and private ranches. And so we don't know what they look like on public lands or uh, as wildlife, other wildlife do. We don't drive across Wyoming and, and see pronghorn antelope and think that we're on a pronghorn antelope ranch. But if we saw buffalo, that's what we would think because we we're stuck in a paradigm of not recognizing them uh, as an important species on the landscape. So in, in terms of what we want to do with these tribal buffalo projects is to designate them as wildlife, 
allow them the acreage to exist as such, to grow the numbers to a, a level where we can sustain a population and maintain the genetic, genetic heterogeneity of our population by maintaining a, a population threshold needed to uh, preserve those, those genetics. It's always odd for me when people say, when you talk about buffalo conservation, they say, well, where are you going to put them? Because there's no better animal adapted to any of the ecosystem types that we have. They were from Mexico to the Arctic and from the west coast almost all the way to the east coast from sea level to 13,000 feet. So when people ask where are you going to put them, it's like you can put them anywhere. They're going to do well. And that's why there's cattle gene integration because when the buffalo were wiped out, they wanted to make a better cow because they freeze to death. So I, they, last year, there were over a million cows that died in the Dakotas when that Arctic burst came down. Over a million cows died. But I heard not one report of a buffalo or calves dying because they're adapted to the climate. And a buffalo will face into the storm and walk towards it as opposed to cows, which will cower and, and, and go with it, prolonging their exposure to the cold. We hope that eventually what, what we can do to set precedent for buffalo management on tribal lands will, will trickle over into what we can do on public lands because we see the buffalo emblem on everything. It's on our state flag, it's on our, our, our logos for our businesses and nonprofits. But again, you have to go to parks and refuges and private ranches to see them. And so, um, you know, we have to really challenge ourselves uh, to, to understand the history, the story, because it's not just a Native American story, it's an American story about what happened to the buffalo, what happened to Native Americans, the, the, the synchronicity between the two and why it's so important contemporarily that we restore this animal to our communities, because it's, it's really about healing uh, from, from those atrocities of the past. But despite those things, the buffalo is a keystone species, and so its importance on the landscape to other organisms is, is critical. They benefit mammals, birds, lepidopterans, butterflies, arthropods, and you know, which are insects. Uh, certain birds need buffalo hair for their eggs to reach the right incubation temperature. Uh, buffalo are adapted to the climate here. Uh, they have seven times the hair per square inch as a, as a cow does, allowing them to exist in the, the harsh climate. Um, seven, two times the surface of teeth than a cow, because, so they can uh, uh, digest and absorb less hardy nutrients, uh, woodier species. They primarily feed on the grasses, which leaves the forbs, and so they encourage plant biodiversity. Biodiversity or the, the number of plants increases with the buffalo presence. And so ecological integrity is caused from this, this keystone species. Other species like the, the beaver, uh, very important for water quality and, and things that, you know, these, these things were essentially removed for political reasons. You know, the buffalo, the, the beaver for hats wolves and bears for, for sheep and cows. 
The way that this landscape has been altered with the influx of, of European settlers and pioneers has changed the way that we use water, the, the way that we use the landscape, the way that we value our wildlife species, the, the, the way we manage for fish or, or lack thereof. So, you know, the tribes are still fighting to maintain uh, a way of life, a worldview, a connection to our, our, our animal and plant, plant relatives that was passed on to us from our grandmas and grandpas and are, are, that's slipping away. But as we bring that buffalo back, you know, it gives, it gives pride and uh, appreciation and value to who we are as, as Native American people, buffalo people, that, that we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for that animal and what it provided for our grandmas and grandpas. So we have to uh, honor that. We have to continue the, the management style of, of what our grandmas and grandpas taught us, and that is that these animals all belong here. The wolves and bears, they belong here. The coyotes, they belong here. The buffalo, it belongs here. And that economy, those, those animals, the animal economy, which isn't money-based, is where the real value of this place is, the health of the rivers, the health of the fish, the health of how things all fall into place together. And it's been disrupted. And so as we heal ourselves, we're also working to heal the land and put some things back that was taken from us. And so through that, you know, we, we find that comfort and healing, but also uh, hope for the future in that our young people will be proud of who they are as Shoshone or Arapaho, Cheyenne or Lakota, uh, because we have this animal here again, not treated as livestock, but treated as wildlife. And in so doing, when our population threshold is met, we will be able to hunt buffalo in the same way that we hunt elk and mule deer, whitetail, pronghorn antelope, moose, bighorn sheep. And that wildlife economy, when it's complete, will allow for the improvement of our, our health. Because with that buffalo, as it was removed from our diet, we became relied, you know, we relied upon the federal government to provide rations. Oftentimes that was flour and sugar. If you've ever had fry bread, you know, that fry bread is not a traditional food, it's a survival food. And it's resulted in, um, you know, high rates of diabetes and heart disease and other health-related issues. So a return to the traditional diet, very important. You know, we can look around us right here. We have buffalo berries, currants, choke cherries, uh, gooseberries. The traditional diet is right here growing on the landscape. And if we can return to uh, eating and use, using those fo foods, and reconnecting with our, our plant and animal relatives, then that, that helps us heal. Well, thank you, Jason. History is important. In just 170 years, there have been huge changes in our landscape, and most important, in the way the dominant society views the landscape. It may be that these changes are coming even faster now, unless we who have been forgetful of our relationship to the earth can reconnect, can reconnect with the earth and recognize and come again to respect her gifts and to remember that respect shows up in reciprocity. 
In my first visit to your reservation, I had the privilege as a grandmother of sitting with three of your Eastern Shoshone grandmothers. That was the first time I heard of the idea of taking a coin or something with you when you take your grandchild up for a walk in the woods or over in the prairies. And then if the child wants to take a stone home or pick a flower that's very beautiful, the child knows they must leave something in return. They must give back. Starting young with respect for the earth is so important. Well, this is about how the quiet revolution works. We are listening. We're hearing different approaches. Let's quell the fire and say good night. See you at the next session of the Quiet Revolution, Ways of Knowing. Produced by Jackie Coffin with the assistance of Jacob Zimmerer. Next session, we'll be heading east to Maryland, where we will meet another entomologist, Dr. Hiram LaRue. Hiram will sit with us at his campfire and maybe share a poem or insights from his long career in government with the U.S. Department of Agriculture. See you next time on The Quiet Revolution. Let us hear from you. You can write us at our email, thequietrevolutionpodcast at gmail.com, or find us on Facebook. And thank you for listening.